ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder. Go to ajcbreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. The deck is clearly stacked against Ross Harris. No one's gotten up there and said, I think he's innocent. The question is whether they can be fair or not. To determine whether they can be fair, it doesn't make any sense to allow a lawyer to browbeat the juror into, you know, declaring their fairness, because everybody would say that, right? I mean, unless you're related to the victim, you're going to say, okay, I'll be fair. If the judge tells me to be fair, I'll be fair. You took that to be pornography? Well, when you drop your drawers and take a picture of yourself and send it through the internet, yeah, that would be pornography. Well, here we are. But really, where are we? We're in that weird interval in which the Justin Ross Harris trial has broken down and sputtered out. And it will restart in another place, in another season. Don't know where, don't know when. Sounds like a song. But before breakdown goes on hiatus, we'll be back when the trial starts over, I want to tell you how the trial came undone and why. From where I was sitting in those impossible wooden pews in the courtroom, it looked like a major mess that could have been avoided. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I've been covering courts in Georgia for 25 years, and I've never seen this before. All the way to the very end of jury selection, just a couple of days away from opening statements, and cue up law and order, bum bum, it all shuts down. Court officials say the trial so far has cost the taxpayers of Cobb County, Georgia, up to $25,000. I suspect it's more than that. On the first day alone, the county assembled 239 prospective jurors and had them fill out questionnaires. Each received $25 for their day's exertions. That's what you get paid for jury duty. And that comes to almost $6,000. Superior Court Judge Mary Staley tried to warn the lawyers off a change of venue. She said there are courthouses in Georgia that don't have air conditioning. Now that would be a trial. Here's Staley on the bench. The press... There is a tent city. You can see it out my window. So what about them? If we take up all the hotel rooms, where are they going? Of course, they have big fancy vans. I guess they can sleep in their van. I don't know. I've never been in one. We are talking about the likelihood we end up in possibly a rural community with very limited amenities away from our support system. In the coming weeks, we'll find out where the trial is headed. Remember, 
Georgia is a very big place. So the trial could easily move hundreds of miles away from metro Atlanta and still be in the Peach State. For example, the city of Brunswick, often mentioned as a possible new venue for the trial, is 325 miles from Cobb County. Or it could go to Albany, Georgia, in the southwest corner of the state, 202 miles away. Columbus, Georgia, home of Fort Benning, 123 miles away. So, how did we get wherever we're going to be? Is the defense ready to go forward with the motion? Okay. And state's ready. All right, when everyone's settled, I'm ready for argument. That was Monday, May 2nd, at the outset of the hearing for the change of venue motion filed by the defense. Lawyers and other observers, including me, were all asking this question even before jury selection began on April 12th. When is the defense going to ask for a change of venue? And why hasn't it done so already? Well, it finally did on April 29th. The court heard first from Brian Lumpkin, one of Harris's lawyers. Honor, we're moving for a change of venue due to the inability to assure a fair trial for the defendant, Mr. Justin Ross Harris. There's a pervasive, persistent opinion of guilt that has been formed since June of 2014 that continues up to this point in time. We've seen it repeatedly over and over from juror after juror as they've been questioned regarding formations of opinions, maintaining of opinions, even strengthening of opinions, and unfortunately, as the publicity indicates to us, the emotionalism of those opinions. As we've been telling you for weeks now, the most important moments of a trial often occur before testimony ever begins. That's jury selection. Do you remember Atlanta criminal defense lawyer Bruce Harvey? We introduced you to him in episode one. He represented a daycare worker who was charged but acquitted of murder for leaving two-year-old Jasmine Green inside the daycare center's van after a visit to Chuck E. Cheese. Here's what Harvey says about jury selection. I think it's the most important part of any case. I have always operated under the philosophy that if you get a good jury, you can win any case. But if you get a bad jury, you can lose any case. And I think the most important part and the most underappreciated part of any criminal case is the jury selection process. Trial by jury is one of the most important constitutional protections we have as Americans. Listen to how Bruce Harvey puts it. But you know, the idea of a jury is at the core of our system. And we're one of the few countries in the world that still retains the right to jury trials. And the one qualifying thing is that those juries should be impartial and fair between the state and the defendant. And that's the only thing that keeps a system like ours working. And if you can't get an impartial jury, then the system breaks down from the beginning. Thanks for the breakdown reference, Bruce. So this is bedrock stuff, the stuff on which our democracy is founded. And that leads us to this week's Lesson Lesson in in the Law. The Harris case, and all criminal cases tried by jury, comes down to impartiality, as Harvey points out. During his argument, Brian Lumpkin cited a 1936 U.S. Supreme Court decision that lays it out nicely. It says, impartiality is not a technical conception. It is a state of mind for the ascertainment of this mental attitude of appropriate indifference. The Constitution lays down no particular test and procedure is not chained to any ancient 
an artificial formula, which again just leaves us with ultimately it's the discretion of the court. That's why Your Honor has a very weighty responsibility in looking at this question. In 1961, the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in again with a landmark ruling on pretrial publicity. Leslie Irvin, a suspected serial killer known as Mad Dog, had been accused of carrying out six murders in the Evansville, Indiana area in the mid-1950s. He was appealing his conviction and death sentence based on the fact that during four weeks of jury selection, his trial judge had denied two motions to move the trial out of the Evansville area. Said the high court, England, from whom the Western world has largely taken its concepts of individual liberty and the dignity and worth of every man and woman, has bequeathed to us safeguards for their preservation, the most priceless of which is trial by jury. The failure to afford the accused a fair trial by a panel of impartial, indifferent jurors violates even the minimal standards of due process. But the court also said that it is not necessary that jurors be totally ignorant of the facts and issues involved. This next passage is kind of funny, because in 1961, our communications tools were somewhat primitive compared to what we have today. Here's what the court said. In these days of swift, widespread, and diverse methods of communication, an important case can be expected to arouse the interest of the public. Well, back then, of course, people were often lucky to have one channel on their black and white TVs. The court could little have imagined how swift, widespread, and diverse communications would be today, 55 years later. So, the sum of it is this. Mere knowledge of the case is not enough to disqualify a juror, the court said. This is where it gets tricky. In cases of intense pretrial publicity, people may well have formed an opinion before they're called to jury duty. So the court must decide how strongly held a juror's opinion is. Think about that. Not just do you have an opinion, but is that opinion set in concrete or putty? In Mad Dog Irvin's case, Eight of the 12 jurors seated to decide his fate had initially said they thought he was guilty. The Supreme Court said it shouldn't be too much to ask that Irvin be tried by a jury that wasn't already convinced of his guilt. The court set Irvin's conviction aside and ordered a new trial. He was retried and convicted in 1962 and sentenced to life in prison. He died there 21 years later of lung cancer. Okay, back to Judge Staley's courtroom. The defense argued that pretrial publicity in the Harris case was staggering. Jurors filled out a 93-item questionnaire. They were questioned in the courtroom one by one by the judge in both sides. The questionnaire and the interviews showed that many of the potential jurors were openly hostile toward Harris. Some even became emotional when talking about Cooper Harris's death. This resulted in very emotional, very personal commentary against the defendant. We've seen it on national television, we've seen it in local media. We see letters to the editor, comments to the editor, editor, such horrible, horrific comments referencing the very thing the state has questioned each juror about, what's potential punishment? Foregoing any issue of guilt or innocence, people discussing about how they think Mr. Hare should be punished for this. Hor horrific things from bringing back old Sparky, referring to the electric chair, allowing him to be literally tortured to death. As if the pretrial publicity wasn't bad enough, there was also some bogus information out there, Lumpkin said. 
He suggested that the police planted some of it and that it spread across the Internet like a stain. Unfortunately, there's been quite a bit of incorrect reporting in this case. And that's a note, and we'll note that as we heard from potential jurors. Let it be very clear. The reporting that's been happening consistently, even in those items we produced today, even a year and a half later, still contain incorrect reporting claiming that Mr. Harris searched and researched for child deaths in cars. That is not true. It has never been true. The law enforcement has set out and made some statements to suggest that. They have testified under oath to magistrate courts that not only did that happen, but he stated that he did that. And that single piece of incorrect reporting has so greatly affected people. And we've heard it from jurors in this questionnaire as they come and testify that, my goodness, if he's researched how to kill a child in a car, how long it takes for a child to die, that one piece of incorrect reporting, I would suggest, is greatly responsible for a huge amount of improper emotionalism and inability to receive a fair and impartial jury in this case. At the outset of jury selection, you assemble a big group of citizens who are called to duty at random. Then you set about questioning them to decide whether they're qualified to serve on the jury. In the Harris case, Staley needed to qualify at least 42 jurors to serve in the final pool, from which the 12 jurors and four alternates would be selected. She had qualified 41 when the trial blew up in her face. Turns out, she qualified six people whom the defense thought were not qualified at all. In all six of those cases, Staley denied defense motions to excuse those people for cause. She had done so after the jurors answered a question posed by prosecutors. Could they put aside their belief that Harris was guilty and decide the case based on the evidence presented and the law? Here's Brian Lumpkin. As these people sit here and they want to be fair, they want to say that they won't prejudge Mr. Harris, they want to satisfy the prosecutor who's asking them very direct leading questions that sure, I'm not going to tell you right here in front of the judge I won't listen to the evidence. I'm not going to tell you right here in front of the judge that I won't listen to the law. Absolutely, I want to be able to do that. But even many of those who have even indicated yes to that question said, but I don't know that I can do that. I'm not sure. I'm going to do my best. And the state seems satisfied that, well, just do your best. Your Honor, we're not satisfied that people are going even in trying to do their best, that they can be fair and impartial. That they can somehow break the bonds of the emotionalism that this case has carried due to the pretrial publicity and render a true, fair, and impartial verdict. Then he ticked off the six jurors Staley had qualified over the defense's objections. Here's a sampling of his observations. Juror number one indicated that he had a bias until evidence was produced to change his bias that the defendant would have to prove otherwise. Juror number three, she could not say 100% that she could follow the oath. But guilty was her starting point, and she had an inability to be impartial. Juror number 23, had heard about the case and formed an opinion over a year and a half ago when they first heard about the case and the reports on the case. That opinion was the defendant was guilty. And notably, that juror would require the defendant to prove that he was not guilty. Juror number 26 
having formed an opinion of guilt. When asked if taking an oath would set, aside, set that opinion aside, Juror would reply that she did not think so. The defense would have to work really hard to change that opinion. After these jurors were qualified, I talked to Atlanta jury consultant Denise Delarue. She has consulted with the defense in some of the highest profile cases in the nation. I am curious and bothered by the six jurors who answered the statutory qualifying question that they could not be fair and impartial who are in the panel. Why would anyone want to risk error or just injustice by seating six jurors who said they could not be fair and impartial? The case law is clear in Georgia that you're on dangerous territory when a judge or a prosecutor seeks to rehabilitate, quote, a juror into leading them down the path, say, maybe I could put that aside and listen to the law. So what if you were called to jury duty on a high-profile case about which you knew a lot and had formed opinions? Could you just set those things aside? Here's attorney Bruce Harvey again. Well, it's always difficult in, in, in my opinion to qualify someone who says that they'll try. Um, they'll try to set aside something that they've brought into the courtroom already, that they've formed an opinion, that have, they've expressed that opinion, they've lived with that opinion. And then when some judge says to them, hey, can you set that aside? They say, well, you know, I'll try to do that. Uh, and that's an almost impossible task. Nobody wants to really sit there and say, I can't be fair. Um, and so trying is the best they can do. At the venue hearing, the defense was singing from the same hymn book. They're human beings, Your Honor. We had to treat them as such, not as robots, not as automatons, but someone who actually has emotion, is affected by the community, is affected by the circumstances, is affected by the surrounding area. And our concern, frankly, is that there's an actual prejudice in this jury pool, and the court should look at that in ruling upon this motion. So why did the defense wait so long to file for a change of venue? Why not do it at the beginning and get it over with? Well, the defense claimed all along that they did not want to move the trial out of Cobb County. We want to obtain a jury that's fair and impartial. Uh, and let it be real clear, we don't want to have to move out of Cobb County to get a fair and impartial jury. We absolutely want one. We've wanted one from the very beginning. That's why an additional reason why we didn't move for a change of venue earlier than Friday, because we were hoping, beyond hope, there might be a way to actually get a fair and impartial jury here in Cobb County. Our concerns have just been heightened and raised to the point that we simply don't feel like we can not address this issue and make it clear to everyone exactly what's happening here in front of us. Lumpkin even proposed an unusual solution. Don't move the trial, move the jury. In other words, he wanted to impanel a jury from outside Metro Atlanta and have them bust in to hear the case. Just wait till you hear what the judge said about that. In the alternative, Lumpkin said, if the judge would not grant a change of venue, he asked her to reconsider her decision to qualify the six jurors whom the defense found unacceptable. Lumpkin spoke for one hour and 24 minutes, without a break, really. But his closing was pretty effective. We have all worked very hard. No one wants to have to start this process over. However, I think more importantly, no one wants us to have any question at all in our minds that Ross Harris was provided a fair and impartial trial by jury in this case. And jurors who cannot presume innocence should not be 
part of the process. He will not be convicted upon rumor and supposition, upon news report, or talk show host soundbite. Unfortunately, that's what this case is brought about. Those were strong arguments, but the prosecution came back with a good one of its own. Lead prosecutor Chuck Boring said, well, yeah, you can argue about those six, but what about the three dozen other people we already agreed on? And among those three dozen were some people who seemed perfectly suited to sit on the case. This includes the guy with no TVs and no internet connection at home, also qualified, was an army reservist who was living in Alaska at the time of Cooper's death and knew next to nothing about the case. How do we find a fair and impartial jury, a legally qualified jury for the defendant in Cobb County? Well, Judge, the three past weeks have answered that and the defense has admitted as much. At this point, we have, not even counting the, the jurors that we've fought over and argued about, there are 36 jurors, enough for 12 to sit and for two alternates that the defense has agreed are legally qualified. How do we do it? We've already done it. Boring also said he was at a loss as to why the defense was calling for a change of venue now. Why not much earlier? Your Honor, this issue of venue has been on everyone's mind for months. It was brought up in conversation before trial. It's brought up in conversation during trial. We have no motion, we have no motion, we have no motion. We were all provided a number of questionnaires in this case with the same obvious concerns that the defense is saying they have now. No motion. It's absurd the defense would now argue we need a venue change. Not weeks ago when this was in question, but now that we've proven we can. Boring tried out a metaphor that his brother probably wouldn't appreciate. This is a strategy basically taken from a playground in the backyard of somebody's house. It reminds me of going to play wiffle ball with my brother as a youth. We would go out in the backyard. He would always want to play a bat first. I'd say, okay, as long as you go play, you can bat first. And I'd strike him out. Things wouldn't go as well as it was planned for him. You know what he would say after he had decided he wanted to start? You know what? That was practice. I want to do over. That didn't count. Those runs don't count, those strikeouts don't count. I want to start all over again because it didn't go my way. Boring then disclosed that over the previous weekend, the prosecution had already conceded one of the six jurors at issue. We have 41 qualified jurors only, and I will say this, Judge, just to let you know, juror number three that they argued, we emailed over the weekend, we talked about it, I looked back at that questionnaire, I looked at the transcript, we looked at her, she had some severe hardships as well, and you know what? We said, okay, we're, gonna, we're not contesting that, juror number three, fine. We're going to concede now, strike that one for cause. So, then there were five. Five prospective jurors who stood between the prosecution and the defense. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.
Why was this so important? Five people? That brings us to the second part of jury selection. Once the final pool is picked, the lawyers each have nine peremptory strikes, meaning they can remove a juror from the pool for any reason other than race or gender. The story of juror number 22 shows just how important it is. Juror 22 was an expressive, confident man who freely admitted to the court that he had a voracious appetite for pornography. The prosecution didn't like this guy. A porn fan might wind up being sympathetic to Ross Harris and all of his online sexual exploits. Conversely, this might be a guy the defense could work with. Early on, the prosecution asked the judge to strike Juror 22, but she disagreed. Juror 22 made the cut, but the prosecution wasn't ready to let go. A few days later, prosecutors called the athletic director for a nearby school to the stand. Juror 22 had told the court that he went to that school on a baseball scholarship, but the athletic director testified that, no, he couldn't have done that. The school doesn't even have a baseball team. Juror 22 was excused. So we were talking about peremptory strikes. Those mean the difference between seating a juror who hates your client or seating a juror who at least seems willing to listen. So that's why the prosecution went after Juror 22 so doggedly. If they could persuade the judge to strike Juror 22, prosecutors wouldn't have to use one of their precious strikes on him. And that's why the defense was fighting so hard to get rid of those five jurors Staley had qualified. It would have to use five of its nine peremptory strikes on jurors who, the lawyers believed, shouldn't have been qualified in the first place. Summing up before Judge Staley, Boring called the defense's arguments disingenuous. Your Honor, the defense asks, how can we find a fair and impartial juror, jury here for the case of this defendant? It's very simple based on their own admissions that these jurors were qualified, we've actually got enough for a jury and a couple of alternates. All we have left now are to qualify a few more jurors to get enough alternates to be able to get through this trial. So judge, I would ask you to deny their motion and that we continue this afternoon with jury selection. Staley then allowed Lumpkin to have the last word for the defense. This time, he was to the point. This is not a game in the backyard. It's not a bunch of little boys in here playing wiffle ball. It's a sad, tragic, difficult case. And we can't undo the horrible tragedy that's occurred. But what we're trying to do is prevent another tragedy from occurring. That's the court's job, is determine brought before a jury, Ross Harris should have a, every opportunity to have a fair and impartial jury. Staley did not rule right away. She said she would return after lunch and issue her decision then. First of all, I hope everyone had a pleasant lunch. At this point, just about everybody in the courtroom, shoot, probably everybody in the courthouse, figured the judge was going to deny the motion for a change of venue. Staley is known as a pro-prosecution judge. She used to be an assistant district attorney in Cobb County, and the prosecution had just made a strong argument. But right off the bat, she said this. Upon reviewing the motion uh, over the weekend and then hearing the beginnings of argument, I thought this was a pretty straightforward yes or no decision by the court until we got to the defense's argument suggesting their prayers uh, for relief. What? Did you catch that? She was just saying it was going to be an easy decision to grant 
the change of venue. But then she stumbled on something in the defense motion, the part about bringing in a jury from a different jurisdiction. This judge would never say, hell no, from the bench, and maybe not from anywhere else, but her response was unequivocal. One of the prayers for relief was that the court move to some other jurisdiction, select a jury from that community, I guess put them all on the bus, bring them up here, put them in a hotel, and try the case with them. There is no way in the world that I would ever consider doing that to anybody. Period. Staley then talked about the inconvenience that would arise from a change in venue. So we're going to be out possibly in some rural area what kind of accommodations are there going to be for us? It's not that we can't do this. Venue has changed regularly, but y'all need to think about this. Think about the expense to the taxpayers. I want you to think about the wear and tear on all of us if we pick up and go somewhere else. For the life of me, I did not see this coming. I couldn't understand why the defense filed a motion for the change of venue when it did. I couldn't understand why Staley didn't deny it right after the arguments. Again, the prosecution and defense had both agreed that 36 prospective jurors were qualified to serve. But then, the judge dropped a bombshell that made everything crystal clear. Here's what she disclosed from the bench. Now, last Thursday or Friday in Chambers, we had an in-chambers meeting, and it was very productive. We talked about scheduling items, which we can do off record. And I suggested that you all consider looking at some of these early challenges for cause uh, that I denied, and perhaps you all coming to some agreements. Okay, Staley was clearly having second thoughts about her prior decisions. That in-chambers meeting, by the way, would have been the previous Thursday. I remember that break very well when the judge and the lawyers all left the courtroom. Perhaps not coincidentally, the motion for a change of venue was filed the next day. She likely was tipping off the, the defense that she would entertain such a motion, and that's probably where the defense got the idea. That's Marietta criminal defense attorney Ashley Merchant, who has followed the case closely. While she didn't say you should file a motion, she, she, what she did say gave them a heads up that they should do something, and they probably strategized at the end of the day about what their options were and thought that that was one of the best options. By now, Staley seemed ready to grant the motion that no one thought she would grant. But she decided to take one more run at a compromise, something that could avoid moving the trial out of Marietta. So you've identified six jurors, uh, and apparently it's down to five now, that you have concerns of or concerns about. And I'm going to task you right now to go out and talk with one another and see where you go. And if you can agree and we can move forward with jury selection. I'm fine with that. And if you can't agree, then I have before me the motion for change of venue, and I have it under advisement, and I'll make a decision. Over the next two hours, the prosecution and the defense bargained over the five jurors. They returned to court late in the afternoon. The state said it would agree to give up two of the five prospective jurors. The defense hadn't moved an inch. They wanted all five gone. The impasse forced Staley's hand. She granted the change of venue. To say that the juror questionnaires show a pervasive knowledge and extreme opinions that are negative to the defendant is frankly an understatement. 
And then the testimony. They come to court and the testimony corroborates uh, what the questionnaires show. And this courtroom has not been a place of mild opinions. And a cold questionnaire doesn't give you the sense of what the jurors are saying, of how they are responding. Judges don't talk to the press about ongoing trials. If Staley did, I would have asked her some pointed questions. Why were those five jurors acceptable in the beginning and then unacceptable in the end? And if you thought you'd made a mistake on them, why not remedy that mistake by disqualifying the jurors yourself? You still had more than 140 people left in the pool. If you'd found 36 people everyone could agree on, how hard would it have been to find six more? Staley did not address any of those questions when she issued her ruling. She just shut down the Cobb County version of the Ross Harris case. Marietta lawyer Ashley Merchant said Staley may have tipped off the defense that she was willing to entertain a change of venue motion, but she also tipped off the prosecution about how to avoid a change of venue. Give on those five jurors, and we'll just keep going. I was surprised. I was surprised that those jurors were qualified to begin with, because a lot of times when you try cases, the state will just agree on certain jurors like that. And those jurors just seemed to, to shout cause strikes. And so I was shocked that the state, and, and again, I mean, I just thought they were kind of greedy with those strikes and wanting to keep those jurors. You know, you can't, those jurors should not have been kept. I mean, they just shouldn't have been. I, I think this was a very expensive mistake. I think this is a very expensive do-over. We've got the DAs that are paid to be there, the deputies, the cost of transporting him. He has to have a special transport back and forth. The cost of housing him, now it's going to be another six months before they can even go to trial. The cost of housing and the cost of the courthouse, the cost of the jurors. This is a very expensive process, and there was an alternative, a very reasonable alternative that was presented to the state, and they could have agreed to that. It's their choice how to use the taxpayers' dollars, but it does seem like this might have been a waste of taxpayer dollars when we could have actually gone to trial in this case, and they could actually have gotten a jury. So we're packing our bags, heading off to another county. We're going to be away from home for weeks, maybe months. What's that like? In 2002, Brian Steele found out. He represented Sidney Dorsey, the former sheriff of DeKalb County, who was charged with ordering the murder of his successor, Sheriff-elect Derwin Brown. I know, you can't make this stuff up, can you? As the trial approached, Steele conducted three mock jury trials of DeKalb County residents. And at those mock jury trials, the jurors, which would probably be around 40 total, separately, but 40 total people, probably 39 of them had already decided that the former sheriff of DeKalb County murdered the sheriff-elect, that the former sheriff, Sidney Dorsey, was an adulterous person, that the former sheriff, Sidney Dorsey, was a liar. The former sheriff, Sidney Dorsey, was so close to a admitted murderer, Patrick Cuffey, that there's no way that Sheriff Dorsey was not involved in the killing. And when I went from mock jury trial to mock jury trial to mock jury trial and heard the preconceived opinions about the former elected official, it concerned me a great deal. So even before jury selection began, Steele filed a motion to change venue. It was granted, and the case was moved from DeKalb County to Albany, Georgia. It was an expensive pain in the neck, but Steele says 
That comes with being an advocate. No. The client comes first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. There is no doubt about it. I was firmly fixed that I was going to lose this trial simply because the trial was going to occur in DeKalb County. And based upon that, I didn't care if I was going to Australia. I was going to do everything that I had to do lawfully and ethically to defend Sydney as best I could. The expense is unfortunate, but I absorbed the expense because it was something much more greater than money. This was his liberty. And I felt that I would not be following my oath of being a lawyer if I put my personal decisions of being inconvenienced, not being able to sleep in my own bed, paying more money because I rented a house or an apartment, paying more money because now I was buying all of my food out when I could have it at home, paying more money because I had to join a gym down there because I like to work out, paying more money because of the gasoline, um, learning all new things, getting lost down there, not having all of my conveniences that I had. When it came time to question the prospective jurors, Steele said the new panel in Doherty County was everything he could have asked for. The jurors didn't know Sidney. They didn't have this preconceived notion that he was a killer of anybody. They didn't believe that he was an adulteress. They didn't believe that he was uh, bribing and shaking down people. They didn't have any belief of whether he was an honest or dishonest person. They didn't know about his past and uh, the allegations that he had killed somebody or I think two people, potentially one or two, in the past. So it was totally what you'd want. It was awesome. It was awesome voir dire. I was honored to be there. Till the verdict. And then I realized I should have been in DeKalb County. Couldn't have been worse. Dorsey was found guilty of murder, racketeering, theft, and violating his oath of office. He was sentenced to life plus 23 years. He's now 76 years old. In 1991, criminal defense attorney Bruce Harvey represented James Robert Caldwell. He was charged with the rape and murder of his 12-year-old daughter and the stabbing of his 10-year-old son. That case, which also originated in Cobb County, was moved to Columbus because of all the pretrial publicity. We, we spent a month, a month and a half, in a hotel in Columbus, Georgia. Um, how hard is it? You're gone. You're spending time in a hotel in Columbus. The county is, is meeting the financial burden. The, the judge and the prosecutors are there. You're pulling a jury pool from that venue, so they're not necessarily inconvenienced. It's a big inconvenience on everybody, but it's an opportunity, again, to reinforce the cornerstone of our system, and that is a fair and impartial jury. Let's not lose sight of that. It's not lost on me that the Dorsey case and the Caldwell case were moved because of pretrial publicity that influenced the opinions of prospective jurors. And then there's the Harris case, which is now moving for the same reason. My newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and this podcast have certainly contributed to that pretrial publicity. We have tried to do so in a responsible way, but the fact remains, big stories don't become big stories unless there's a big audience for them. In this digital age, any story that finds an audience is likely to go looking for more of an audience. Some people say our coverage is simply contributing to the din surrounding the Ross-Harris prosecution. And there is a din. But we like to think of ourselves as the anti-din. Breakdown is all about explanation, illumination, and context. 
The Harris Trial offers a marvelous opportunity to break down our court system while covering a very compelling case. If you disagree, you can always change venue, but we hope you won't. So this is where we part company for now. The trial will be back probably in September, and so will we. Until then, thanks so very much for listening. A simple look outside in the media, there's what's referred to somewhat as a tent city of reporters that are here every day making live reports uh, from various places around the courthouse that, again, jurors would have to pass by each and every morning as they come to court. Again, I'm not suggesting that the press should not be doing that. They certainly have the right to uh, record and to uh, report upon these things. But the issue is what are common, ordinary people who see this media onslaught at the courthouse going to be subjected to? What expectations might be on their minds that, wow, this is something big and everybody's watching us and we know everybody hates him. We know they've got opinions. Heck, half of the jurors we've talked to, some of those who've even been qualified already have those opinions of his guilt. Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cabot, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.